Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ellen Trackman here with Jennifer, Jennifer White. White. I say yes. it's me. Oh, we're going to say it at the same time. Yeah, we could. No, <laughs> we totally talk over each other. Um, um, I am yeah. glad to finally be doing this episode. I feel like it is such an important one. The question about going through IVF, having embryos made, and then what happens to those embryos? Because I think it's really hard to think beyond, I just want to have a baby. But Chances are with technology and, you know, hopefully you get a bunch of embryos. So you have lots of chances that there will be remaining embryos and what happens to them. And it's such an important question and it's a complex question. Um, yeah, no, I absolutely. And it's like, I think it just doesn't get the, the service that it needs to be talking about early and often. It's like it's like my mantra about insurance, right? Talk about insurance early, <laughs> early and often. And often. Oh. Talk about <laughs> embryo disposition uh, early and often. Avoided. <laughs> I mean, hopefully, you know, people don't get to a situation where that, and I've definitely seen people, and I know you have too, wrestle with the idea of what do we do if we have extra embryos left over? We don't want to, because we don't want to deal with that question. So then they, some people take on the expense of only creating one embryo at a time, which is so expensive and so difficult, but at least they've thought through what what their feelings are afterwards and those complex feelings surrounding it. Well, I am excited to present an expert on mental health who has worked so many so many years of experience working within um, fertility clinics as well as separately and really counseling and getting in in depth in these issues. Welcome, Melanie Mickelson, to the podcast. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, to give a little background for our listeners, I, I don't know where to start with all of your amazing credentials, but you are a mental health professional and um, all of the letters, MSW, LICSW, I'm going to start making up letters now, but... Um, diplomat clearly, was in there somewhere. Clearly, oh, yeah. Diplomat <laughs> in um, clinical social work, so you... Um, clearly very experienced in the social work, mental health side of fertility with over 23 years in fertility counseling, both with a private practice and embedded with fertility clinics. So um, we'll let you share more about your professional credentials, which are vast. Um, but now, Melanie, before we go into all of that, do you want to tell what led to this world of being in the fertility um, support area? Sure. I'd be happy to. And again, I'm thrilled to be a uh, part of your podcast today. I've been a longtime listener for many years. And in, full, dis- and in full disclosure, I am one of those people that sometimes you mention. I first met you all when I was giving a talk at the Seeds Conference in California a couple of years ago. And I was one of those fans who ran up to you and sort of stalked you and said, <laughs> I love your podcast. So... And full disclosure, I was one of those stalker fans at one point as well. Which was we very memorable. We don't have that many stalker fans, so we, we are honored. <laughs> well, there you have it. Um, as many of us um, that work in this field, we got into this field, myself included, due to our own personal experiences. So my journey actually began about a year after I was married, and I had gotten married moved across the country, started a new job. And I had always been that rule follower type of a person that if you work hard enough, study hard enough, it'll come true. And suddenly for the first time in my life, this was the most difficult thing I had faced where it was not happening after a year. No pregnancy was being achieved. So at that point, I was worried, went to a doctor Maybe stereotypically, my husband, who actually works in the medical field, (laughs) said, I'm sure it is nothing. Everything is fine. And I started that journey of going to doctors, trying to figure out, and we were that case of unexplained infertility. Everyone said, everything looks great. Um, And also at that time, ironically, we did not have a fertility clinic in the city where I live. So we had to travel 
five hours away. Wow. It's been two weeks. Five Pain hours. The feeling. <laughs> wow. Yes. Five hours. At the yes. Lot. Take your vacation time oh. to go do in vitro. Oh. So that is what we did. And the first time we went, it was all rosy, sunshine, exciting, hopeful. And given my age and our, our unexplained infertility, I was 28 at the time. The doctor said, wow, you're going to be an easy case, you know, open, shut case. And his last words, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. If only I had known. And at that time, I remember them speaking to us about probably having a lot of leftover embryos and what would you do in that particular case? And as many people face, we can't even think about that at that time. Yeah. Like whatever. Let's have a baby right now. Yeah. Having extra embryos would be like winning the fertility lottery. Sign me up. The more, the better. Right. And after our first cycle, we got the call and I remember where I was sitting in the hotel room and the doctor called and said, we have some bad news. You have no embryos. Zero fertilization. And this was after I had, I don't know, 18, 19 eggs retrieved. We had tons of embryos. This was also back in the day when they did what we call two-day transfers. So very different than it is now. So at that point, my husband and I went home emotionally, financially, every other way devastated. And I really took the next year to figure out next steps. I wasn't ready to jump right back into it. And I had time due to my age. We go for the second time. The clinic's very grateful to say, I'm very grateful to the clinic. They said, you know, maybe it was something in the lab. We'll give you a discount even. Great. Okay. Great. We go through time number two, and we actually get some fertilization. And this was also in the day people will gasp when they would throw four to five embryos in and hope something took. (laughs) So... I had what I call the shortest pregnancy in history. I had a chemical pregnancy for about 48 hours, but felt like a step in the right direction. Before we could really think about trying a third and final time, which I said, three's the limit. That's it. We did go and sign up with an adoption agency because at that point, I really just wanted to be a mom. I really didn't care how I went about that. And we paid the money, did a home study. I was excited. And at this time, there was a shortage of fertility drugs. So the doctor said, hey, if, you go, if you're going to go a third time, you better go buy those drugs. Mm-hmm. At that point, we had already spent five to $6,000 on drugs. And my husband said, hey, we don't have to do this if you don't want to, the third try. And I said, it's not going to work anyway. I don't want to waste $5,000. And we tried for the third and final time. They put in five embryos, and I ended up with three sticking, two took, and I have my miracle twin pregnancy. Wow. So it was a very long journey, and six years to the day of our anniversary of being married was my due date for our twins. And after three months of bed rest, most of that in the hospital... Wow. A very scary pregnancy. I did deliver two healthy babies who are now 25 years old. Mm. So my journey had a positive outcome with a take-home pregnancy. However, I joined the club that most of us don't want to join, the Infertility Club. And it's a lifetime membership with lifetime benefits. (laughs) (laughs) And that is how, obviously, I became involved in this field. The the doctor that I had worked with, there was a new clinic that came to town. They asked, would I come and work there? And I said, sure. And I started working part-time and never looked back. And so this club of infertility, it was, you know, my profession picked me, is really what I like to say. Yeah. So... I started realizing not long ago when working in my current uh, clinic that I've been at for about eight years, I started noticing that when people would get their storage bills, if they had extra embryos left over, they would get storage bills or follow-up letters, and the clinic would try and work with people to figure out what were our next steps to do if we had extra leftover embryos. And just to go back, I'm going to use the term embryo disposition. And 
What that means is when you complete or end your fertility treatment, but you still have leftover frozen embryos, a patient is faced with a decision. What do I do? What do I do with these extra embryos? And that's what I'm going to refer to as far as embryo decision making. Yeah. And can I ask, were you put in that position? Did you have any remaining embryos? That is a good question. You know, and I have thought so much about that. I actually was not put in that situation because, again, when they put so many embryos in at once, Mm -hmm. there typically weren't as many leftover embryos. And that is one thing that has changed the culture and the climate today. But I have often thought about what would I have done? You know, I did you even have to make I know, you know, clinic consent forms have really evolved, but did did they ask you the question? They did ask me the question. And I do remember the look on the doctor's face, because again, the first time I really thought we would have so many embryos and I very quickly, without even thinking, said, oh, of course I would donate because, oh, I'm such a giving person. I'm a counselor. Mm hmm. And I remember the look on the doctor's face and she even sort of said, well, let's, you know, kind of let's slow this process down. (laughs) So ironically, I didn't have that decision, but I remember sort of that look of surprise on her face because I probably gave it two seconds worth of thought. And I mean, this is such a big question that everyone who goes through IVF is faced and whether they really have to deal with it on the back end or not, most do, but don't expect to. It's a really hard choice to try to predict, you know, after all is over or, you know, whatever outcome there is, what do I do with remaining embryos? Do you want to start by kind of giving an overview of what the disposition choices are? And I will say you've written some amazing work on this. And I know I just read an article recently and I was, I was personally shocked by like the statistics of who chose what. So we can talk about that as well. Right. Yes. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I really became interested because I realized that people did not have good education, good counseling, even a place to go to talk with anyone when they're faced with this decision about what do I do if I'm lucky enough, or maybe some people feel unlucky that they have leftover embryos to make these decisions on. And I really started to feel like I know I can do better. I know we as medical professionals can do better. Clinics can do better. Storage facilities can do better with talking about this. And honestly, patients can do better. I think that as patients, we also have to advocate more for ourselves as well as realize these are really important decisions and no one can make them for you. So one of the things is, why why are there more embryos, do we think now, right? So technology is getting better? Yes, yes. <laughs> so over the past 10 years, and this is really where uh, the, the biggest changes have occurred, We have improved lab techniques, right, where it increases the number of higher quality embryos and higher number of blastocysts that can survive the freeze-thaw. So that's one reason. The second reason is single embryo transfers has really been the norm in fertility clinics, especially since 2013. So the push is one, maybe two embryos to be transferred. So that's going to leave you with a lot more embryos potentially left over to store. There's also more genetic testing now, PGP of embryos. um, And those are all things that can lead into why do we have this abundance, right, of embryos? Do you happen to know if there are statistics of kind of what the the average number of eggs retrieved? What's the average number of embryos in a cycle? And what's the most common leftover number? Do we know any of those kind of general you statistics? Know, um, I would. I don't know them off the top of my head. I always use SART as our national data collection source, S-A-R-T. That's where I go, or the CDC also collects that type of data. And the data is typically two years behind because it takes two years to get pregnant deliver and report data back to clinics and sites. So that is a really good question. Some of the statistics that I find interesting, though, 
Um, there was a nationwide survey of patients who underwent fertility treatment. And this study found that 40% of those who completed their childbearing couldn't identify a preferred uh, disposition option. Okay. Wow. So they, like just they just couldn't were choose. Stuck, right. Wow. And nearly 20% indicated they were likely to delay the decision indefinitely. So wow. I just found so just that like fascinating. So that just means pay the storage fees forever, right? <laughs> yes. Make a decision by not making a decision or the worst case scenario, at least in my mind, is what we call embryo abandonment. And that's when you don't make any decision. The clinics or storage facilities can't get in touch with you and they don't know what to do with the embryos. So an ASRM, uh, which is our guidance body, it's the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. In 2019, they reported that in the U.S., 4% of nearly 400,000 cryopreserved or stored embryos were labeled as abandoned. That's, that's a lot of, that's a lot lot. of embryos <laughs> to be abandoned. And again, that's where I'm saying, you know, it's really important that I think if people thought about this through the lifespan of their treatment, right? So the article I wrote, really, I called it the lifespan of embryo decision-making before, during, and after fertility treatment. Because as we've discussed in the beginning, I, I equate it to like, you know, you're starting to write your fertility story. You're writing your fertility journey. In the beginning, you're throwing all these concepts and it's like you're in the introduction of your book, right? You're in the introductory phase and we haven't even written chapter one. And we're asking you to skip to the end of your book, write your final chapter and know exactly how you would feel and believe. We it's like know. it's like people doing wills. It's so hard to like right. think about that time, right. thinking about death, thinking about what you would want, and just so many unknowns. Well, right. and so many people have been through so much that they just assume it's not going to work too. So they they kind of already have a mindset that I'm not going to have anything left to deal with. Exactly, I definitely see that. And you know, extra embryos um, can be quote an unintended consequence of IVF, right? And suddenly your infertility becomes your past. It's not your present and it's not your future. And that's a real mindset change for so many people. And I don't have all the answers. And I often end up with more questions sometimes <laughs> after these discussions um, about this type of a topic. But I do know it can be, it can be really heated. It can be heated emotionally, politically, morally, um, and really, lack of information that is so needed can really be disempowering to people. Mm. And so when we talk about decision making and, okay, you know, we don't want to obviously and we can't get into a political, ethical, moral debate about what does an embryo mean to you? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to someone else? Yeah. Some people view an embryo as a person, as we know. Some as property, which legally you can speak to that better than I can. <laughs> Even that, and, that's complicated. Right. And then the third is uh, many people see that kind of middle ground. They call it a potential quote. It's between a human person and a human tissue. Mm -hmm. And so this is where the person's belief about what an embryo means to them it guides their view and acceptance of certain disposition options. And of course, as we know, like I say, it can change over time. That, um, that was to be my next question was, can that change over time? Yeah, definitely. I have seen people's uh, minds change very much over time. So I want to normalize that. If you yeah. signed something initially and you changed your mind, that would be the norm. Of Do what you I see. generally see one direction of changing or kind of all over the place? Like, I'm curious if people think, yes, I want to donate. And then they have 20 embryos and they're suddenly like, wait, it could be 20 other families with fully genetic kids to my own. Or mm -hmm. what are, what are those scenarios that you see? Yes, that is a good question too. I'm not, you know, I don't know if I have an exact trend of what I see. I can tell you anecdotally at the clinic where I work, um, and I always check in, and I did again with our embryology department just mm -hmm. to make sure I'm correct, um, 70 to 
of our patients that have leftover embryos do decide to discard. Okay. Okay. So that, you know, kind of gives you a rough percentage of numbers. Um, What I have really found interesting and fascinating, there's the possible areas, I think kind of what you're getting at is what goes into people's mind when they go to make any decision, right? So here's what we have found. The the, uh, scenarios are how many embryos do they have stored? Okay, that makes a difference. How long have they been stored for? Uh, Your religion, your race, age at creation of your embryos. Did you have multiples or not? How many IVF cycles did the patient do, right? Do they live in a state where you have mandated fertility coverage? So in other words, hey, I have the money to do a transfer again, right? I have these leftover embryos, but I also have funding to try another cycle. So many well, factors. <laughs> yes. Was a donor used in the creation of the embryos? And we can get to that later as far as different choices and what that yeah. means. Does your clinic offer donation to research as an option? Does your clinic have an internal training program? Not research. Does your clinic have an internal donation program? So those are all things that are themes that have been identified as what goes into people's decision-making process. Well, I would love to talk more about the research option because I just learned something new from you where when I'm working on legal documents where people are discussing um, with embryo donation or egg donation, kind of these potential possibilities, we generally look at those choices as discard slash destroy, um, donate to others for reproductive reproductive purposes Mm -hmm. or donate to research. And that third category, a lot of people like that. And I just learned from you that that's not even a real thing, (laughs) like practically for a lot of places. Do you mind talking more about that? Yes, that that is really something I find probably the most uh, confusion and misinformation from patients. Because for many people, they pick research or they think they're picking research because they're choosing this when a person doesn't really feel as much of an emotional tie to the embryo. And often it feels like a good middle ground for people. They they can't think of discarding, but yet they really don't want to donate it to another person. Okay. So what happens though, what people I think don't realize is research on embryos is not readily available out there. So first I would say that some clinics, ours included, have an option to donate for, quote, internal training purposes. What Mm -hmm. that means is a patient still does choose the discard option. So they still have to choose discard. And I have to ask, so your kind of 70, 80% statistic discard, did that include donation to internal training? Because that's kind of a subset. Wow, that is a good question. (laughs) I mean, actually, I'm going to follow up and get the answer for you on that because I I I hadn't thought about that. That's a really good question. I always thought the research included um, kind of helping train others, train, you know, upcoming embryologists, but I I hadn't separated that. Yes. And that would be, in fact, I will do that. I think that's an interesting uh, data point to see. Because of the fact that you're correct. So when you, in our clinic, and I think in a lot of clinics, when you say donate to internal training purposes, that that is not IRB approved research. I have to really explain to patients that this isn't a research study. And These, tell us what that, what IRB approved um, means. IRB means an institutional review board. So that would be all medical research studies have to go through an institutional review board process to protect human subjects. And so that would be what I would call a very formalized research process and protocol. Okay. And we're going to get into a place that does that. Yeah. Most clinics though, that is not what they're doing. So In other words, you're right. A patient can sign uh, internal training purposes, and that means the embryologists are able to practice, quote, if you will, um, on the embryos. They are not used for research purposes. They are never used to try and create a pregnancy. They're never given to anyone else. And after the um, 
practice on the embryos by embryologists, the embryos are then discarded. So they're discarded as if they would normally be discarded in any other donation that you say discard. Does that make sense? Yeah. Versus research itself is not that. Yes. So if you look up embryo donation research, one of the issues is it, again, it can really be a political hotbed because there are not a lot of people out there that are doing stem cell research on embryos and or advertising that. So if you look this up, what you will find is there are some particular research institutions that do research, but for instance, they'll only accept embryos from one particular clinic. So oh, I found okay. that in the past before they work with one clinic and one clinic only. What's the reason for that? I am not 100% sure, but my guess is probably just easier facilitation, less manpower, direct pipeline, you yeah. know. And then what happens, there used to be um, a particular researcher that we knew of that we could refer patients to, but then their research becomes complete. So in other words, it's always changing. Maybe they have a research study going for two years, and then the research study is complete. So at present, the ones that I have, and again, this is always changing, okay? But what doesn't change is there aren't a lot of options available. So right now, there is an option available to donate to research. But for instance, it's only for uh, uh uh, pre-implantation genetically tested embryos. So it has to be a certain type of embryo and that embryo has to have had a genetic defect, if you will. Okay. So that is a very tiny limited scope. The big new news that I find really fascinating and interesting, and I've done a lot of communicating with this group, and I think it's really going to change the shape of potential for patients to donate to research. There is a newly established reproductive tissue bank, and it's called Renew Biobank, and it's out of Stanford University. So this would be an example of it's IRB-approved research, okay? So they've gone through all the long process to get their research on any kind of tissue approved, Mm -hmm. and a patient can decide do they want to donate to research that includes producing of stem cell lines, potentially, or the patient also has the choice to say, hey, I want to donate to research, but I do not want to produce any stem cell lines. And can I, I get this fear a lot that people think, oh, if I donate to research and they use a stem, they make a stem cell line, then I could have genetically related persons out there to me. And I don't think that's accurate, but please tell me what what that means. Well, I'm not probably the best person to ask, but I do know, again, part of all the informed consents that you sign, and that's why, again, IRB approved research, it is the protection of subjects. It is making consents clear, Mm -hmm. understandable, readable, so that everyone knows what they're signing up for. What I would say is, it's very, very clear, though, none of these embryos or the tissue can ever be used for any kind of future family building, if you will. So that's my short, probably unscientific answer to that. (laughs) Apologies to put you in that play. Well, if you don't mind shifting gears a little bit, I would love to talk about this area that I, I know you are certainly an expert in. So the big choice of some people choose to donate to others to give embryos a chance at life. And there is so much emotionally and otherwise Mm -hmm. that goes into that where now your children have these genetically related people out there. Um, Even the the terminology can be very sensitive. Like, is that a sibling? Is it a brother or a sister? Can we we say that even though they're not socially in that situation? I'd love to hear your advice and kind of what you see with those who are considering donation of their their embryos. Great. Yeah. Again, that that's definitely an area that I spend a lot of time working in. I think it's a wonderful option for both donors and recipient families as well. I use the terminology um, donation to mean donate your embryos or receive embryos. 
And part of that is because I'm following the ASRM guidelines for language, because you're right, it gets confusing to people. And so they do not use the word adoption. And in part, my understanding is adoptions also not used because legally you can't adopt an embryo. Is, is this correct, attorney? Yeah, I mean, I will say attorneys, we, we stay away from it generally because adoption is so highly regulated where an adoption is something under a state statute that you're doing home studies, you're doing background checks, you're having to go through, you know, a certified or um, licensed agency. It's very controlled by, by law. And so to put it, to even use the word adoption legally can be concerning. It's like, no, that's, that's, we're not falling within, within those laws. Right. Okay. So, and that's the same reason that I, uh, and I explain that to families that I work with. And if they want to use a different word choice, that is absolutely fine with me. I just explained to them why I'm using the words that I'm using. But why do people decide they want to donate, okay, to someone else, okay? And this is what we call, quote, reproductive donation. And that means you're donating your embryos to someone else to try and use to reproduce. So the things I've seen, people tend to say they don't want their embryos to go to waste. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, They often say, we have spent so much time and money creating these embryos. Why wouldn't we do something with it? Okay. They also say, gosh, we hope someone would help us out if we were in that situation. Many times the embryos that are being donated could be from the fact that those people also used a donor egg or a donor sperm or sometimes yeah, both. And I feel like that's an, an always an interesting element in this decision making. Do you, and I keep asking for trends. I don't know if you know, anecdotally maybe, are people more inclined to donate when they received a donor egg or donor sperm initially making the embryos? I, I would feel just like logically they, they might be because they're kind of already in that donation world and recognize the generosity of others and want to help mm-hmm. others. But isn't there some level, and I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt your question, but isn't there a level of, the, doesn't the donor also have an ability to stop that further donation too? Well, I mean, I can tell you from the legal side, when yeah. we're, oh, Melanie, you're still here with us. Jen and I will yes. argue this for a second. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so from the legal side, whenever we're doing an embryo donation, we have to go back and there's one of you know, part of the embryos were formed with either donor egg or donor sperm, we have to go back to look at the contracts of the sperm donation or the egg donation and make sure that it was clear that the recipient had the right to donate further. And there wasn't some kind of limitation in the contract that said, you cannot donate my eggs or embryos formed from those eggs further. I guess my point was that that could inform something and make it not a trend. It's more of a legal blockade. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt. (laughs) Throw that small piece in there. (laughs) Absolutely. I would agree with, with both of what you have said. Okay. And I'm really glad you brought up that legal component too, because you are correct. When we have embryos that are being donated, if there was a donor egg or donor sperm used, those consents have to have already been signed that the donor realizes that their donation could go further and become not just their donated sperm, it could become their donated embryo. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what I find is, yes, I do think there's a trend. And again, anecdotal, I think there's a trend <laughs> that when people have used donors, I am seeing more and more that they choose embryo donation as an mm-hmm. option. What I'm also seeing is, keep in mind, you might have used a known egg donor or a known sperm donor. So in other words, your brother, your sister, your cousin. And what I definitely find there is oftentimes those known donors haven't thought about the fact that they need to write in their contract if they don't want any embryos created from their sperm or egg donation to go to someone else. Yes. And that is an area I feel people definitely have not thought about. And so for sure, I find where when it's a known donation of an egg or a sperm that helps make that embryo, those people tend not to sign and not to want to then allow 
further donation of their embryos. I will say you are speaking my language because that is like a daily where yes. you know, often someone <laughs> donates to a friend or a family member. They're like, this is so simple. I'm giving them my, you know, my sperm, my eggs. Why do I need a lawyer? Why do I need a contract? And then we, I start saying, well, let's think about this. And they're like, oh, right. I didn't think about that. <laughs> so that is like my daily. <laughs> yes. I feel like it could be my weekly as yes. well. So what do people need to consider? And this is what we talk about if you're considering embryo donation. So one big stickler that I have, but everyone doesn't agree on, is your family building complete? And the ASRM yeah. guideline does say that family building should be complete. However, what does complete mean? Yes, that's a really hard one. I feel like most of us don't know. I mean, right. when you had your twins and it was a really difficult pregnancy, did you know for sure? For sure was my family, family was complete. No, absolutely <laughs> not. I kind of lived in the world of, well, if the miracle pregnancy occurs again, or many people ask me that too, because at the time when I went to work at the new fertility clinic, I could have gotten a really great discount in trying again. Right. Uh, however, my, my joke but truth was, if you could promise me, A, I would get pregnant on the first time, and B, I would not get pregnant with multiples again, sign me up, right? Yeah. But yeah. nobody could guarantee that. And so... I definitely think that that's an area that people struggle with. And my bias is that I think before you choose to donate, you should be done using your embryos because I am seeing more and more where people say, well, I want to donate two, but I want to keep one just in case, right? <laughs> and that starts to give me heartburn because right. I probability also, goes into yes. whether that one will work. Right. And I also know from Insider Scoop with the embryology lab, they've shared, you know, more than once, and this isn't an uncommon thing where people will ship embryos, maybe not even for donation, but they ship their own embryos and the straws come to the clinic and maybe the straw's empty right? Or maybe yeah. they thought there were embryos in the straw and there weren't. And so I just really believe in my mind, it's emotionally cleaner to really make sure that you're done. So I'll give you a case example. Um, and this isn't necessarily someone that was going to donate, but here's an example that really stands out in my mind. So yeah. I worked with a couple that um, they had been through lengthy fertility treatments. They had a lot of embryos and they were newly pregnant with twins. Okay. And the female wanted to discard right away. Absolutely get rid of the rest of our embryos. And the physician was very good to try and slow this train down and speak to them about that and had them speak to me, which was great because many physicians wouldn't do that or many clinics don't have an embedded counselor. Yeah. And so um, I spoke with them and she did not want to change her mind. And again, that is her right. They are yeah. her embryos. It is freedom of choice. Okay. Right. And you're not there to change someone's mind. You're just telling them no. <laughs> the, the no. options and what that means. Really? Yes. And also to, to you know, kind of let's discuss, you know, what's the hur what's the hurry? What's the rush? If it's yeah. more, if, if is it really that you don't want to pay a monthly storage fee, which is a huge per month, you know, sometimes I know yeah. our clinic works with couples that sometimes they'll wait the storage fee. And can I ask, like, did she, was that her reason, the storage fee, or was it something like more emotional? I, I, I'm not 100% sure, but the outcome was what happened was before she had a chance to sign the consents to discard because of the fact that the, the physician kind of put the delay and, and they had to talk to me and not had to, but chose yeah. to. Um, she miscarried wow. before she signed the consent. Because wow. she was really pretty early on in the pregnancy. And so... In my mind, thank goodness, she had not discarded those embryos. And I think what often happens to what people will say to me, whether it's true or not, they'll say, I don't, it's not that they don't care if 
they don't have another chance, but they'll say, I'm done. And sort of like you're saying, emotionally, I'm done. I'm not going through another transfer. If this one doesn't work out, I don't care, right? In this particular case, they immediately came back, had a transfer, successful the first time with a singleton, went on to deliver a healthy baby. However, as soon as that baby was born, I think the next day, they were calling to discard the embryos. (laughs) (laughs) So that's an interesting case example of how people either, I find people either don't make a decision for years or they want to quickly make a decision. So under the- Did you get um, a birth announcement and a thank you? Thank you for slowing us down on that. (laughs) You know, I actually didn't, but in my mind, I patted myself on the back. (laughs) And I think the whole clinic, uh, I, I know the whole clinic, you know, breathed a sigh of relief when we realized she had not signed those consents yet. Yeah. So, but it, you know, it it was her choice. Um, So that's my bias. I I really think that people, as much as they can be, should be complete. However, when people have donated, I also have seen, it's it's not common, but I have seen people that choose to donate and they've never achieved a pregnancy with those embryos. So maybe they've divorced. Maybe they've changed their minds about wanting to have a child. Maybe they've gotten older. I feel like that is such a hot button to talk about. That, yes, you know, it you, is. When you go through IVF, you know, not everyone's married or in a couple, but many are. Yes. And many are not in a position to think about, I mean, I guess like a prenup, right? Like you don't want to think yeah. about what if this relationship breaks down, mm-hmm. then what happens to our embryos? And that legally for me is like, those are the, the cases that, you know, make it to the state Supreme Courts and then we see the law coming out of it's when couples are fighting over what should happen to their remaining embryos. Yes, How do you yes. counsel for that? Yes. I'm <laughs> so glad you brought that up. Well, one issue is, sadly, I don't get to counsel many people in the beginning. So in other words, I bring it up and I talk about it a lot, but I also primarily only, quote, get to see people that are going through third-party reproduction, right? Oh. Because... They come to see a counselor if you're going through donor egg, donor sperm, gestational carrier, donor embryo, right? But just going through IVF as... Yep. Unless a patient chooses to have counseling, which I would highly recommend, um, they don't really talk to a counselor and they're given a bunch of forms to sign. I'm going to go ahead and reiterate that. Uh, I'm not a mental health professional, but I also (laughs) recommend that everyone go ahead and go through counseling, talk to an expert like Melanie to get that perspective, especially about these options and filling out these forms. Thank you for that plug as well. (laughs) Um, We've had this discussion on consents are not contracts. And I am not an attorney. Um, However, I do try and impart to people as well. This is a consent that you've signed. You, if you really want to make your wishes known, you should go file a legal contract. So in other words, I tell people, I know we're in the dating phase now. Nobody wants to talk about what it's going to be like if we break up down the future, right? Um, And I really try and get people to think about, let's talk about these hard decisions that nobody wants to think about, but let's talk about them when you're in a place of love and happiness and you're trying to create your family. Because statistically, if we looked at divorce, divorce happens that happens, right? No one wants to think of that. So I really do find in bringing that up in the beginning, if I have that opportunity, those people are so much more thoughtful about their decision-making process. Um, So in other words, for me, big, big cases and conflicts that I also get calls about all the time. So case examples would be, and I know you see this constantly too, Someone's divorced and they say, I want to get rid of our extra embryos. Well, our hands are tied. The clinic's hands are tied. Just because you signed that consent originally does not mean anything now. We still need you to go back, re-sign that consent to donate. Both parties would have to be in agreement to that. We have to see the divorce decree. 
That is interesting. So if the consent form says we both choose to donate upon divorce, does that, you still would have, the clinic requires them to resign to that. Yes, because often the clinic consent forms are not that specific. Like yeah. not all clinics are going to say that. They're just going to say, pick a choice. What do you think you'd want to do? You know, yeah, I've definitely seen some people com- have complaints about clinics and I'm not, may not be the clinic that you are with. Actually, I'm sure it's not about that the consents are not as accurate as they want them to be either, or it doesn't allow them the options. They've thought it through and it doesn't allow them the options. I think I had a parent once who was a single parent and wanted to donate to her sister if she passed away. Mm-hmm. And the choices were to a spouse or discard. And those were the only options that she was given in a consent form and they refused to change it for her. Completely. And that, that is what I would see is pretty much the norm too. I can give you... <laughs> Ironically enough, I have a case example about that. (laughs) So I have probably more than one case example, but I did have a situation where um, a couple had used, they were an older, older couple, meaning, um, you know, the the man had had a, a family prior to this. So he had grown adult children. They used a donor egg and the husband's sperm in a remarried situation. Okay. And they had a child. The husband then died, and the original consents said he would like to donate if there were any leftover embryos, okay? So first what we did was the clinic did ask for a death certificate. So we, you know, because how do we know he's dead? I mean, honestly, right? Right. The wife could just be telling us that. (laughs) So that's why why we asked for that. And, And the same could be true for divorce. How do we know you're really divorced, right? We don't know that unless you provide that certificate. Um, so in this case, it was interesting because his adult children, right, they were close and they knew that they had this genetic half-sibling through their dad's second marriage, right? Mm-hmm. But they didn't know that dad and stepmom had any leftover embryos that she's now thinking of donating. And so this would mean that they would also potentially have genetic half-siblings, okay, out there if stepmom donated that they wouldn't be aware of, right? And so the the mom, stepmom of these older children had not thought about the fact that, oh, wow, I would need to let them know that, right? Do I tell them? Do I not? What kind of grief is this going to open up? And so for this particular very thoughtful woman, it was talking a lot about reopening of the grief, the loss. A part of him is gone again. How are the children going to feel when, if she were to donate and realize she's donated dad's sperm away and there's these half genetic sibs out there that they don't know or don't want to know. So. I thought in that particular case, it was very interesting because she was just very thoughtful in the whole decision-making process and, of course, had never considered any of these issues. And she actually decided not to donate. Interesting. I mean, we we talked to a lot of people who take DNA tests and they're surprised. And I just feel like that that was very thoughtful because that scenario of someone – finding out they have genetically related siblings out there is really common. Like someone was a donor and didn't tell them or, you know, other scenarios. That's very thoughtful. Yes. And I don't know if you'd like another gory case example or if you have. Okay. Another one, which um, is very fascinating to me. In this particular case, there was a divorce. And this was the wife's own egg and the husband's own sperm. Okay. And I think they had, I can't remember exactly. I think, well, yeah, three children. Okay. Extra embryos as well. They divorce and we get the, you know, that we have that piece of paper. We know they truly are divorced. Meanwhile, after they divorce, he dies. And she comes back to the clinic because she says, okay, um, I know that this is what he wanted, right? 
So when he signed the original consent, it said that any remaining embryos were only to be used by his wife, which at the time of death was his ex-wife. Okay. Okay. (laughs) If we're following this. I see this. Yes. Yes. So murky. um, And the reason she was calling was because, and this is not common, she wanted to be able to write up a contract and make sure that she could donate. She wanted to save these embryos and donate them to her children. Her minor, her minor children. That so she wanted to donate her embryos to the embryos sibling, living sibling. Yes, siblings, siblings. Right, Uh, and the embryos are related to their father and mother. Yes, yes. So, as you can well imagine, there was a lot of areas we could go with discussion, including posthumous reproduction. Would the dad have wanted uh, embryos to be used after he had died? Would he want his own genetic daughter, for instance, to carry her own sibling? Her sibling. Um, Would he want his sons to use those embryos in a gestational carrier? Who knows, right? Yeah. And so that case is not resolved. But you also have to think, well, there is no way to really, you can't write a contract or give to minors these embryos. So the only suggestion in my mind would be, and help me out, attorneys, the the mom could put this in her will if she wanted, if she were to die. But what would you think? I, I mean, I'm still stuck on the yes. donate to my wife, but weren't, didn't you say they were divorced? Yes. So I'm not even sure yes. that qualifies. I'm right? not even <laughs> sure it would either. That's why it's one of those, go talk to the attorney. Yeah. Get us a court order. Right. Tell, us, tell us what to do. But oh. the mental health component really needed to focus on what really would have been his wishes what is it like to be a child raised of a parent who was deceased before you were born? Such a big, I mean, that's I mean, there's so many. Too. So aside so many. from, you know, having to try to envision your relationship breaking down and not being together, you also need to envision your partner's death or your death, mm-hmm. both of your deaths of what you would want in those scenarios. Yeah. 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 And that's where back to where we started full circle with embryo donation. That's where even if it's your own gametes, your own egg, your own sperm, yes, we would need to know what do you, you know, what do you want to do in the case of your death or divorce? You know, is it okay? Would you want that partner to donate if they had extra embryos or only to be able to use themselves? Well, and even the question of use, like, do you want them used after your right. death, right? Just even by your surviving partner. Right. Um, so again, that's why access, my, my mantra with all this is access to targeted, timely, consistent <laughs> guidance all along the way when our patients are trying to make decisions. And, and it feels like, you know, it shouldn't just be from the counselor, Right. Yeah, many don't have counselors. So what I'm saying is, I really think the nurses, the doctors, the donor team—you know—we all embryology. We all get these questions, and we all get confusion. And I just feel like that, you know, at all stages, if we can talk about it a little bit more, we can remove the emotional burden for patients that have extra embryos and don't know what to do with them. And I really just believe, you know, this is more social determinants of health, to use that buzzword. And uh, I I just really believe, too, this is a model for good continuation of care, right? This is a family-building model. And that's what we should be really focusing on, not just getting someone pregnant and saying goodbye. Um, And I also find what is really, um, I think, sometimes hard for people to understand Let's say you come back and you don't know what you want to do with your embryos and it's five years later. 
you have not talked to your doctor in five years, right? Or 10 years sometimes, I see. (laughs) And so who do you go to? You call the clinic. Who are you supposed to talk to? You know, it's not that your doctor doesn't love you and remember you (laughs) and is so happy that you had your family. But quite honestly, you haven't been a patient there for five years, maybe, or four years. Yeah. Yeah. And what are your recommendations there? (laughs) Well, this is where, again, I think a couple of suggestions. One, I think there need to be more counselors that focus on this and provide these types of services. So if if you Google counselors to go see for embryo disposition, there are none. I mean, you know, there's... (laughs) It's not really just a sub- you, just you. Right? Well, it's not like a subspecialty, you know? Um, and I think the other piece, like I say, I, I, my fantasy is that we have some kind of ongoing dialogue if we send, you know, your storage bill, put a little blurb in there. Um, you know, sometimes people get storage bills monthly, sometimes uh, some clinics do it that way, some do it yearly. So maybe it's every year you send something out. Um, uh, it's not just clinic storage. So there's all kinds of long-term storage facilities too. One of the biggest ones is Reprotec. And I know we use them a lot too. I think they would probably feel the same way, you know, to be able to collaborate because oftentimes in long-term storage, the patients are dealing with the same issues, right? They, they don't know. And so they, they say to someone on the phone at Reprotec, I don't really know what I want to do with my embryos. So I think, again, it's back to this idea of front loading. I think we can do better educating people up front. I think podcasts like this hopefully can help. Um, <laughs> I think it's great to let people know that it's normal. You, you probably might change your mind over time. Yeah. Um, I think and it's to, also to not be shy about reaching right. back out to the clinic and saying yeah. I need to amend that consent form or submit yeah. other documentation. That is a huge thing. And I wish, and, you know, hopefully in the legal profession, they can reinforce that too. Yeah. At any time they can reach out to us and change that. Yeah. I, I definitely find people, this is kind of getting back to what trends do I see? This may sound really unusual. A lot of people have no idea what they initially signed. So if you're one of those people, don't feel bad. Um, many people say, I can't remember. Or they'll look at each other they'll, when, you know, talking to their partner. Do you know what we signed? I think we signed this. <laughs> I'm not sure what we signed, right? So one thing is just remember what you signed. And if you don't have a copy of that, we would have a copy of that. That's one thing. Um, it's really okay to not remember I have people that they also don't remember how many embryos they had in storage. That's okay too. Or sometimes, sadly, they think they have more in storage than they actually have. And it's still confusing to them because they don't realize that at the time they were told that there was attrition or that, oh, the number of embryos you had isn't the same as the number of eggs you might have had retrieved. Right. <laughs> right. I definitely see that. So it's okay if you and, don't remember. I mean, we live and breathe this world, but I certainly get right. people who are new to it who interchange the word eggs and embryos, which are yes. of course like very different yes. Like eggs is like just the, the female version of sperm <laughs> and embryos are the combination of egg and sperm. So very different. But I, yes. I, get that I deal with that time. a lot too. And I just you try, <laughs> I try and gently educate. Mm-hmm. I do but, the same thing. I'm like, it has a lot of attrition. Maybe, maybe a quarter of your eggs might end up as an embryo. Maybe. Yes. Yeah. So I think that's, what that's people shocking get to people. Confused. Yeah. They get confused that like, well, your eggs aren't your embryos. Um, you know, another theme that I saw, this is another case example that, and this is, you know, very, very tough for people, but there was a married couple that wanted to donate their remaining embryos. And this was a time when we had an internal donation program and they thought they signed all of the consents. And this is again, where I'm like, patients have a responsibility as well. 
What happened was the consents were sent to them and they didn't send them all back, right? So they assumed that these embryos had long since been donated. Yeah. Well, several years down the road, we realized, you know, that, and and usually I'm sure my guess is it's when the lab does inventory or I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but these things happen where, oh, Somewhere along the way, these consents weren't really signed. So, of course, we would never donate those embryos. They would have to have the consents, all consents signed. Well, when I reached back out to the couple, I, a few years later, I found out that they have divorced in the meantime. So this really emotionally complicates things because now they both can't agree yeah. on whether or not they want to donate. And the embryos are in limbo, and it's a lot of emotional distress for everyone. And imagine, I mean, I can't imagine how odd it would feel if you thought five years ago you had donated your embryos, and you never asked was a pregnancy achieved or not. You just let that fantasy lie. And to be told down the road, oh, actually, no. This is Groundhog's Day. You have to go back again and make this decision over and over. And now you're in a bad situation where you guys yeah. aren't in agreement. So. Yeah. Uh, that's rough. I wish I could say that's like never heard of, but probably it'll be something that's more heard of. Yeah. Uh so I think this is this topic could go on for hours and hours and days and days, and there are conferences <laughs> on them. Are there resources, books, articles, et cetera, that you point your client, do you call them clients or patients, patients to that help them kind of delve more if they're interested? And we can definitely post yes. links and, and those resources as well, but anything come to top of mind? Yes. So one of the, the main ones that comes to mind for me Um, And this is in regard to for people that are really considering donating their embryos. So there's an organization called Empower Donation. And in full transparency, I am on their advisory board. Um, And it was started by three women, two had donated embryos and one received embryos. I find that that is a best site for people who are just considering this as an option even. They don't necessarily have have to have decided that they are going to do embryo donation, but the webinars, the support resources on support resources on there, that would that's where I send a lot of people. And I concur. I've definitely gone to those webinars and I think they're amazing. They're really Yes. Yes. So that's that's a great place to start unless you're like absolutely not, I would never consider that. Right. And in those cases, I don't usually see people that are going to discard, like they've already made their decision. They know what they want to do and they do it. Right. And so much, some of them are so good. We're just getting a chance to hear from or talk to people who have done that option that you're thinking of can be really helpful. Yes. I definitely have people ask me that a lot too. Can I talk to someone else? And this is why I direct them there. The other place, of course, that most of all of us know is uh, Resolve, which is the National Infertility Association. I think they have great information. Yes. Uh, so I would definitely check out. Go Resolve. Sorry, yes. I'm doing this all that <laughs> I, know, I know you are. You, you go to all the advocacy events. Uh-huh. You're, you're so good at that. Um, so Resolve is always the other um place that of course is um, our American Society of Reproductive Medicine. Mm-hmm. And the reason I like that, you can go on and you can see all their ethics opinion papers, as well as guidances and guidelines. So for instance, there's a paper that recently was, you know, came out again that talks about disposition of unclaimed embryos. And it's an ethics committee report, right? So you can really educate yourself on what are fertility clinics kind of working under? What are we using as our guidances? What are mental health professionals using? And what are legal professionals that work in this field? What are they using as their guidances? And I like ASRM has a lot of patient information fact sheets too. So I, I would check that out. Repratech, 
their website um, has some good information as well. Um, so reprotect that long long term storage, and yeah. then finally for research options, if you have any desire for that, I highly encourage the Renew Biobank, the one that I mentioned earlier that sits. And Stanford. we will, so listeners, we will link to all of these. So. Melanie, we'll we'll get those links from you and Great. make sure that we include them so people can easily find these. Great. Okay. Thank you so much. I feel like we could go on forever, but um, we will let everyone take a break to do <laughs> move on with important things in their lives and actually signing those consent forms. We <laughs> so appreciate your time of sharing your expertise with us and going through such an important discussion topic. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Melanie, for sharing your expertise. And I feel like we definitely need follow-ups. There's so much to go into, so many different tangents and in-depth conversations to be had, but we so appreciate you doing um, this interview with us. Absolutely. And thank you to all of you who are here with us and listening and uh, are <laughs> suggesting these topics and are being part of our our everything as we create and grow this podcast. We always, always love to hear from people at 303 303- Nine nine seven one nine zero three, or go visit us on our webpage and send us a note through there. Definitely, always. While it's not interactive, go to iTunes, click on those little stars, and tell us what you think. We really do appreciate it. Every 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 comment, everything we read it, we love it, and, and we love to hear from you. A huge thank you, as always, to our team, to Amanda, to Tyler, to Melissa, and to Chris at Work at Bird Studios for bringing us to you. And thank you for joining us. 